This episode of the Supply Chain Brain podcast is supported by A.N. Daringer, Inc., a third-party logistics provider offering a full range of supply chain services, including customs brokerage, freight forwarding, warehousing, and trade consulting in North America. Be sure and stick around after the discussion for a look at the company. But now, on to the podcast. What if all those onerous customs compliance regulations turned out to be a boon for importers and exporters? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Now, we don't want to go overboard about this, but there's another side to those endless customs regulations that most companies view as a burden and drain on their resources. Turns out that many of those regs can actually be a benefit to importers and exporters. If followed properly, they can improve process efficiencies, boost shipment visibility, reduce total costs, and increase margins. And that goes for the so-called voluntary programs as well as the mandates. We're going to dig into the subject with my guest today, Tammy Hetrit, Senior Trade Advisor with A.N. Daringer. Her many years of experience in global trading have taught her that compliance professionals are, in her words, more than a necessary evil. We can be your competitive advantage. So let's find out how. Here is my conversation with Tammy Hetrick. Tammy Hetrick, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Tammy, you know importers and exporters complain endlessly about the burden of customs compliance and regulations that they have to deal with on a day-to-day basis, and yet I believe it is your position that those regulations can prove to be an opportunity for those importers and exporters as well. Is that your position? It certainly is. This has been a favorite topic of mine for years, I have to tell you. Many years ago, I started my career at U.S. Customs, when it was still called U.S. Customs. And when I left for the private sector to help a company build their compliance program, I was definitely seen as a necessary evil. But it soon became apparent to me through the course of my compliance work, what I had to do, like classifying the line of products, understanding where the stuff came from and from whom, and how the transactions were set up, etc. I found that there were opportunities well outside my main role of keeping the company out of trouble. And so within like the first year, I was able to use my expertise to improve process efficiencies and and even improve landed cost, margins, et cetera. And since then, I've made it my mission to prove to companies that we compliance professionals are more than a necessary evil, that we can be your competitive advantage. And I dare say that companies who confine their compliance staff solely to compliance may not be leveraging their resources to the fullest extent. Okay, could you give me an example of one or two past regulations that are now in place but were passed a while back that turned out to be something that was of advantage to companies as opposed to purely a burden? 
So, for example, customs programs like CTPAT or ISA. Customs Trade Partnership Against Terrorism. Correct. Mm -hmm. Or how I like to call it, customs attempt to deputize the importing community to help them keep the borders safe. Mm -hmm. So basically, it's putting the burden on importers to be very rigorous about their supply chain, right, to examine their entire supply chain end to end. Anytime a program like this comes out, there's a huge collective groan, right, among the importing (laughs) community. And it can be a tough sell to companies that are already stressed by the economy or international competition, environmental challenges, etc. And it's usually sold by saying, we don't want that dirty bomb in our container. But the truth is, I've yet to meet a company who hasn't actually admitted that the rigor of CTPAT certification actually paid off in unanticipated material ways. Many of them have found landmines in their supply chain that they were relieved to find and fix before they went off, right? And they were able to fill gaps or move waste out of their processes and find savings along the way. And they found similar results with ISA, the Importer Self-Assessment Program. Most companies aren't jazzed about ISA until customs starts dropping CF-28s on them or talking focused assessments. And the ISA certification process is arduous and resource-intensive, but it makes you a better company, not just in, in customs compliance, but in general and across the board. But membership in these clubs also can have a very tangible and practical benefit as well. So, for example, let's say you're a supply chain manager of an electronics company, and you're bringing in the next big thing this week, and next week it's the next next big thing. You bring them in, say, 10 containers at a time, and you can't afford to have your stuff stuck. You learned this lesson the hard way a couple years ago when customs pulled a container for exam because your supplier put all 10 containers on a single bill of lading, all 10 were detained, and you nearly lost your job. To eliminate that risk, you decided one container, one bill of lading. So in the past two years, you've had 15 exams, but only 15 containers detained, not 150. So you're a big hero. But now your Mm -hmm. customs compliance officer is coming to you, suggesting that you put 10 containers on a single bill again. And you say no. And the compliance officer assures you that because now... Your company is CTPAT certified and ISA certified, a trusted traded partner of U.S. Customs, that your risk of detention is nearly zero. But even so, you're loath to take any risk. Though you do think to yourself, we haven't had a detention in the last six months. Then your compliance officer explains how much money your risk aversion is costing the company. Because your freight bill is complicated, you didn't really notice the $485 in merchandise processing fees that you're paying per container. So the 500 containers you imported last year cost you $250,000. Had you combined the 10 containers per bill of lading, you would have paid only $25,000. So suddenly, all that work getting CTPAT and ISA certified is paying off, and you have the opportunity to be a hero again, right, by consolidating your 10 containers to a single bill of lading. Yeah, interesting, though. It's, it's difficult to, to kind of assess the value of something that didn't happen. In other right. words, uh, you know, it's like risk management officers. Are, if, if you have a really good risk compliance program, you may protect yourself against something, but how do you trumpet that to the organization to say, you know, we save this amount of money? So that, that could be challenging. The other interesting thing about CTPAT, and I guess is this is also the case with ISA, it's voluntary, right? Is ISA voluntary as well, participation? It is. Okay, quote-unquote, I put the quotes around voluntary, <laughs> because if you so, don't, so you know, quote-unquote, volunteer to be in these clubs, you're going to have some pretty difficult times uh, dealing with customs. 
You will. I mean, ISA often is the, quote, deathbed conversion as well, right? So Customs is saying, mm-hmm. oh, we're going to do a focused assessment, and you say, no, 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 actually we're going to be joining the ISA program, and we'll do that audit for you. So these things are voluntary, but there are payoffs for it, and there are risks involved in not joining these clubs. You are going to have your freight examined more often, detained. But, of course, there are also a number of compliance measures that are not voluntary, that are mandatory and appear to be a burden up front. I'm thinking, for instance, if you a few years back, the 24-hour rule, which required that uh, vessel manifests be filed 24 hours before the ship sailed. I think I've got that right at the, yeah, at yeah, the yeah. port of departure. That, of course, was a burden of sorts, but it also gave the importer and the carrier visibility that they might not have had. It forced them to achieve a visibility that was to their advantage, right? Well, absolutely. When that first came out, I mean, everybody was up in arms. Well, that's impossible. We can't possibly know what's going to be in that container until we load it. We had been working for years as an industry, right, as supply chain folks to do container load planning. So we should know exactly what is in all of these containers. We pay companies big money to basically figure out what is the optimal way to load all of our stuff into these containers. So the truth is, we do know what's going to be in those containers. We should know what's going to be in those containers. And the more we know what's in those containers, the sooner we know that, the better we can plan downstream from when it's at the suppliers. So this 24-hour rule really forced all of us to codify essentially what was good for us to do in the first place. Perhaps another example is the conflict minerals reporting rule, although the status of that right now is a little bit in doubt. It seems to have been somewhat defanged by court decisions. But the idea of having to trace the provenance of minerals in your products all the way back to the mine in the Democratic Republic of Congo Mm -hmm. certainly Mm -hmm. seemed like a huge burden. Of course, it was merely a reporting rule. But that also carries advantages in terms of achieving a visibility you might not have had before, does it not? That's right. We should know exactly where all of our stuff is coming from. And especially in this day and age, it's with social media, no one's going to be able to get away with anything. So if we don't know, there are people out there, there are junior reporters out there, right? There are part-time reporters, there are hobbyists out there who are looking at certain companies and they want to look at their supply chains and they can go out and find out almost just as much information as you can about your own supply chain. So you'd rather be out in front of that in case there is something in there that you didn't know and that you wouldn't want to be participating in unwittingly. Or conversely, you have a great supply chain, you're doing everything in a very above-board, sustainable way, and that's something you want to be able to tout, and you want to be able to tout with confidence. We've been talking about some of the sticks that customs puts in our way that we can play with and turn to our advantage, but there are carrots as well. There are programs that perhaps importers do not take full advantage of, such as duty drawback, such as foreign trade zones. You may be talking right. a little bit about that. Do you, do you feel right. that the industry doesn't pay enough, enough attention well, to those? Right, and, and don't even know exists. For example, the miscellaneous tariff bill that comes up every three years. And I was first introduced to the miscellaneous tariff bill years ago. I worked for a company that made footwear, and we created a boot that had a special function. And we had been making these boots for years, as had other people, and making them with rubber plastic uppers or leather uppers. And in this case, we made it with textile uppers. And this never existed before, so customs had no idea where to put it. There was no special breakout in the textile footwear tariff to place this. So we ended up with this duty rate of over 20%, which basically 
demolished the margin that we had on that boot. So I went to customs and asked them, why did you put it in this particular classification? And they said, well, there's no special breakout for this function boot in the textile section. So I asked, how do we get one of those? And they said, well, we don't do that. It takes an act of Congress. Oh, well, how do you do an act of Congress? And they said, (laughs) we have no idea. So I contacted my congressional delegation, and they were so helpful, and they said, we can help you create that breakout. The good news is we can do a breakout. The bad news is it takes two years to do that. But in the meantime, why don't you consider petitioning for inclusion in the miscellaneous tariff bill? And this bill was set up for importers of revolutionary products, brand-new products, that don't have a domestic industry that they would be competing against or putting in a bad place. So what we were able to do is we petitioned and we worked with the International Trade Commission. It was a lot of work, but in the end, we were successful and we were able to import those boots for three years absolutely duty-free. So this is a case where there are programs out there, there are rules and regulations out there that a lot of compliance folks who are very focused on keeping their company out of trouble don't even have time to look for or hear about or learn about that could be of great benefit to their companies. So the bureaucratic process of applying under that particular rule sounds like it wasn't that great. How long did it take you to get that to get uh, that duty-free treatment? It took me, all told, probably about six months. But I, I went yeah. to Washington, D.C. I lobbied not only our congressional delegation, but the delegations of 12 other states that I knew would be interested in this. It was a lot of work. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> It was a great project. Mm. I you have an interesting idea of fun. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Dealing with bureaucrats like that. Yeah, but you know what? I learned so much, and I felt really good about what I was doing for my company. I mean, it was a small company, and we were innovative, and this is a great way to give your innovative company a competitive advantage against the behemoths out there. When you're in footwear, you know who your competition is. Mm. And that innovation was the only way we could compete, and yet we were paying the price of this really high duty rate that once our competition caught wind of what we were doing, they could produce them, but they were on such a scale that that 20% wouldn't nearly be as onerous to them as it was to this small company. So it really made me feel like I was doing my company a huge service and really doing my job. Yeah, I've heard of the uppers issue with a number of different apparel importers as well, with all the different types of materials that go into a shoe. Oh, footwear is just a nightmare. <laughs> you really need to know your stuff in order to be able to leverage the tariff to your advantage. And and then you mentioned foreign trade zones. So when we look at what's coming down the pike in terms of regulations, and we look at this, the current administration, and the current administration certainly has us all on our toes. We're not sure what's going to happen in the next couple of years. But one thing I think is fairly certain, right, their focus on bringing manufacturing back to the United States is resonating. And what I see happening is companies aren't going to be able to be 100% vertically integrated year one. So for years, these companies may bring manufacturing back to the U.S., but they will also continue to rely on their suppliers overseas for specific parts and components. So and they'll do mm-hmm. assembly here, some manufacturing and assembly. And I wager that more and more of that will be taking place in foreign trade zones. So a lot of people use foreign trade zones now. They're like bonded warehouses, except that Bonded warehouses are highly regulated. You have to keep your goods segregated. Whereas a foreign trade zone, you get the same duty deferral benefits. But if you have a robust warehouse management system and you have a great compliance team and you're willing, again, to embrace the burden that is running an FTZ, then you can run that warehouse pretty much like 
any general purpose warehouse and distribution center. So you can bring, again, we talked about MPF earlier. You can bring in hundreds of containers from all over the world into your foreign trade zone every day, every week. And if you qualify for weekly entry, you can file one entry a week and therefore pay $485 max MPF a week, $25,000 a year per location, rather than $485 per container. You also don't pay duty, similar to a bonded warehouse, until you withdraw the goods for consumption. So if you have two or three months' worth of inventory, then you can delay payment of that duty cash flow, positive cash flow, for two to three months or six months or however long you have your inventory there. For manufacturing, a lot of companies may be able to take advantage of the inverted tariff benefit, which is if you are importing all of these parts at a high duty rate and the finished good that you're producing is, let's say, 2% duty, and the parts you're bringing in are 5% duty, 10%, 27%, whatever they may be, you can opt to customs clear those at the rate of the finished good and therefore avoid paying the higher duty amount. Mm-hmm. So yeah. my prediction is that companies who are willing, I mean, it's not for the faint of heart <laughs> running a foreign trade zone, but if you've got what it takes, right, and you partner with good people who know what they're doing, then that would be a huge advantage to you over your competition. Yeah. In my understanding, you know, a foreign trade zone isn't just a building. It isn't just a warehouse. It can be a large area made up of multiple buildings, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. And you can do zone-to-zone transfers. An entire port area can be a foreign trade zone. And ports love these things, give incentives for people to use them. Oh, they market them like crazy. Exactly. And, of course, these have been around for many, many years. We've seen FTZs, and I guess they've been marketed with varying degrees of success. So you suggest that maybe this will be like a new era of FTC embracing, huh? I do. And and the other thing I would really like to see, one of the reasons I think that FTZs aren't used more than what they are, one reason is because a lot of customs folks, they really do approach them like they're bonded warehouses. And so customers who go to the port and they try to set up a zone, they're told you have to do this, you have to do this, and, it, and it's so restrictive that they can't operate. So mm-hmm. I think that, again, with this administration's push towards domestic production, that there would be a corresponding push to the customs community to really unify customs approach to FTZs, a deeper understanding of an FTZ versus a bonded warehouse. And I just think that once everybody's all on the same side of this, that the operation of foreign trade zones is going to become much easier, much more attractive to companies who may now be, they might be told now, you can't do this, this, and this, when really, truly, you can How would we go about creating this unified environment? Wouldn't it have to be through some administrative proceeding on the part of Customs and Border Protection? Or would it be industry getting together? I mean, who's going to unify all this? So, very good question. Last year, I went to the National Association of Foreign Trade Zones Conference. So the National Association of Foreign Trade Zones, right, is this this big body that is the industry patrons of foreign trade zones. They are the lobbying body that works with the government agencies, such as U.S. Customs, Department of Commerce, etc., on the administration of foreign trade zones. I was at that conference and speaking to several people about what if we could get customs to dedicate a C. So customs now has these centers of excellence and expertise. So there are different C's in different locations in the country that deal like there's one that deals with agriculture. There's a C that deals with consumer products. So there are C's that have, that they are centers of excellence. They work with specific industries. So in my opinion, it would be great to have a C that is dedicated to foreign trade zones. 
So all foreign trade zone applications would go through the sea so that there is this one body that is experts on foreign trade zones, and they would make sure that foreign trade zones across the country were operated in a similar fashion, as opposed to right now. Right now what happens is that last year I had to stand up four FTZs in a year, and I had to apply to four different ports of entry, so you're dealing with four different port authorities, and you're dealing with four different customs infrastructures, and every one of them had a different application process, had different fees that had to be paid, and the customs folks all had distinctly different approaches to how these FTZs should be run. So that meant that we had to develop procedure manuals right for, for each individual location. So it would be great if we could have one single approach from a customs perspective to how these things should be run. Tammy, tell me a little bit about A.N. Derringer. Where did it start and what was the company all about from the beginning, early days? A.N. Derringer was founded almost 100 years ago, 1919, by Alfred Neil Derringer, who is the A.N. in A.N. Derringer. And he founded the company to supply hay to the Allied forces at the end of World War I. And the company was born from this expertise and earned one of the first customs brokerage licenses, in fact, license number 22. And here we are nearly 100 years later, and the company is still a privately held and family-owned business. Based where? So we have 30 locations. Initially, our service centers were clustered around the northern border because, as you know, Canada was our largest trading partner for a long time. And then as international trade changed over time, we established ourselves at air and seaports throughout the country. But as you know, with with remote location filing, location matters less than it used to. So with a national permit, we Mm -hmm. can support customers with shipments coming into any port in the country. Now, how over all of those years did the company evolve, as all companies of this kind have evolved, to take on new services, to meet new challenges? And how has the company changed over the years to what it is today versus what it was at the beginning? We have evolved. Uh, We've evolved geographically. But we've also evolved service-wise. Over the years, we started as brokerage, and we have, we have basically developed into a full-service 3PL. We offer customs brokerage, international and domestic transportation, warehousing and distribution, and now, of course, a robust consulting practice, which is near and dear to my heart as a senior trade advisor with their consulting group. The goal of our consulting team is to steer our customers from being reactive to proactive and always strategic. So... Just as we've been discussing, compliance can be very complex, but within that complexity lies opportunity. And our goal is to mine that opportunity for all it's worth. And what we've also found is that some of the biggest challenges our customers have are with other government agencies. So we also have deep expertise in helping our customers deal with other government agencies, for example, FDA, USDA, CFIA on the Canadian side, so these food inspection services with the huge emphasis now on food safety. And we find that the most rewarding part of our job is helping our customers navigate this labyrinth that is not only customs, but all of the government agencies for whom they are the gatekeepers. And basically, we consider ourselves far more than business partners. We're, we're more like adjunct staff. We're an extension of our customers' team. We find that this is how we can be most effective. How do you see the future um, shaping up in terms of what your customers' concerns and pain points will be and what your area of focus will be in the years to come? We'll continue to evolve and anticipate the needs of companies that import and export. Right now, many companies are looking for a one-stop shop. 
This means they want logistics partners with deep regulatory expertise and offer consulting like what we do. And they're looking for 3PLs with the ability to provide customs brokerage and freight forwarding because this allows them to streamline their supply chain and take advantage of these efficiencies. But we also see, as as we've been discussing, increased use of FTZs, bonded warehouses, cross-docking operations, more and more non-traditional warehousing options that we want to offer. We're also seeing and going to see more integration of compliance teams, internal compliance teams with companies that are integrated with other aspects of their company. They're going to find, as I found when I did this for private companies, was that my team was the hub of this huge wheel. We integrated with almost every department in the entire company, but not only integration internally, but with their external partners like us. We're also going to see more and more near sourcing, as we discussed, and this, by definition, will result in more exports. And therefore, customers are going to be looking for more export compliance expertise. So, of course, our goal is to basically stay ahead of what's going on and be that one-stop shop. Going to be an interesting future. Tammy Hetrick, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about the interesting topic of how to use customs compliance rules to the benefit of importers and exporters, as well as telling us a little bit about Ann Derringer as well. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. It was a blast. That was my conversation with Tammy Hetrick of A.N. Derringer, talking about the benefits of complying with customs programs and trade regulations. Our thanks to A.N. Derringer for sponsoring this episode. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.